Al Anderson Afternoons, the podcast. Hey there, and thanks for checking out the podcast. Coming up, Monica Dirksen, Winnipeg Santa Claus Parade has been saved. Fort Gary MLA, James Allum, on a vacant South Osborne building that people in the area want something done with. Donna Henry from Windog on the super dog-friendly candidates you can vote on in the upcoming civic election. And Carolyn Klassen from Conexus Counseling. Please subscribe to and rate this podcast. And now, the podcast. You better watch out, you better not cry, you better not bow, I'm telling you why. Santa Claus is coming to town, Santa Claus is coming to town. Yes, we now know that Santa Claus is coming to town. The Winnipeg Santa Claus Parade has been saved. Monica Dirksen is on the phone with the official news. Good afternoon, Monica. Good afternoon. Great news. Tell us about it. That's great news. Uh, and we've been hustling hard. We've been asking a lot of people for a lot of things that came through in the end. A lot of sort of last minute big donations, some, a lot of small donations. It's It's been so humbling to watch it all happen. Individuals, businesses, uh, foundations, everyone sort of took an interest in this and uh, got us to where we needed to be. You know, when Skip the Dishes cut that check for $40,000, I thought, you know what, I think it's probably a done deal. But I know that you were hoping for more, and it seems that you did get more. Yeah, I mean, the $100,000 was our sort of hard cost. We definitely had to cover that. But now we have a little bit of breathing room for some additional sort of storage costs and things that are ongoing, and we couldn't be happier with the response we've got. So the parade will go ahead as normal. Santa will be there. He'll have a new float, everything, eh? Absolutely. It's going to be a great year. It's the 109th year of our parade, and it's going to be uh, just as good or better than usual. And, yeah, we're going to be unveiling the new float for uh, for Santa. So it's going to be quite exciting this year. You know, I think this is great, and I don't want to be a negative Nelly, but I will give you an opportunity to answer some people that have said, well, how did it get to this point? So going mm-hmm. forward, the parade has been saved for this year. What about the future of the parade? Um, what are you going to do differently so that we don't get close like this again? Yeah, I mean, the parade itself is pretty self-sustaining with entry fees and sponsorships every year. There's not a financial difficulty every year. Because we entered into this contract to build this new float, and we thought we had half of it already raised when we went into that contract, um, that's what sort of held us up. And then when when that sponsorship got pulled, then we sort of found ourselves a little bit behind the game because it wasn't what we were anticipating or what we had planned for. So financially and fiscally, the the parade itself is responsible and self-sustaining. We don't anticipate this will be the case uh, ever again, really. Excellent. Well, it's great news, Monica, and I appreciate you coming on and telling telling us about it. Thanks a lot. (laughs) Thanks so much for having me. To this building on South Osborne, at the corner of Osborne and Morley. Big, uh, if you drive down South Osborne, and I do every day, big, huge letter on the side of the building, front of the building, to the owner of the building. Building is derelict, vacant, boarded up. And this resident, the letter is signed SO resident, South Osborne resident. And the resident basically just wants to know what's going on with this building. Like, what are you going to do with this building? And joining us now on the phone to talk about it is the uh, NDP MLA for Fort Gary and Riverview, James Allen. Good afternoon, James. 
Good afternoon, Al. Thank you for doing this. So what do we know about this building? Well, this is a a hundred-year-old building that sits on the corner of Morley and Osborne, which is kind of an iconic uh, corner in uh, our community uh, in South Osborne. And uh, it's been vacant for 13 of the last 15 years. There's been two major fires and a homicide in between. And uh, the community has uh, tried very hard to get some action to get that building reopened and restored, and uh, that hasn't happened, and it's a source of great frustration. And your constituency office was in this building at one point, wasn't it? It really was. Uh, I worked with the owners to uh, get into the building after I was elected in uh, 2011, and we finally got in there in 2013 because while the while the apartments were occupied, the storefront, street front, commercial space wasn't, and it looked like a real eyesore there. So I was determined to get in there. Within about a year or a little bit more than that, we were burned out like everybody else, and uh, nothing's happened since then, and that's 2014. And you even started up a petition that got quite a few names and still nothing. That's right. We, uh, when the building was boarded up by the city, which was probably the proper action just for security reasons, uh, we started a petition in uh, South Osborne and Lord Roberts and Riverview. 1,400 people signed that uh, petition. We sent it to Mayor Bowman. Uh, we didn't ever really expect to hear anything back, but um, you know, I think it did convey the community's interest in seeing some action on that building, uh, and preferably sooner rather than later. You paid rent to the owner of this building at some point. What's the deal here? What's going on? Well, we expected uh, that uh, he had told me uh, that, you know, within a couple of years, the building would be restored. And so we anticipated that that would happen, took him at his word. And uh, But the history of the, this particular owner, because uh, he has several buildings like this across the city, uh, is to just let them deteriorate after um, terrible incidents like the fire that happened in 2014. Uh, if this were the only building, that might be something, but there's several properties in this state of condition owned by these people. And uh, so we're, we're disappointed in, in their failure to be good corporate citizens and frankly disappointed in the city and not taking more effective action. Yeah, and I don't understand this. I don't have to tell you this, James, but this is a hot area, South Osborne. If they don't want the building, I guarantee you there would be a lineup of people wanting to buy it. Uh, I couldn't agree more, Hal. I, I've said right from the get-go, either fix it or sell it. That's been the main message to the owners and the communities behind that. I have no doubt whatsoever that if a sign for, uh, for sale sign was put on that building today, it would be sold by tomorrow. So that's it? We're stuck? We can't do any more here? Or what's well, the... you're always hopeful that something else would happen. The city does have a couple of tools in its toolbox they could use. One, of course, is expropriation. Uh, the other in the charter is something called taking title without compensation. It's another tool that they have to take the building from the owner if they're not prepared to be good uh, community partners, uh, and uh, the, to date they've shown no interest in taking those kinds of actions. Uh, I respect that it's private property, but on the other hand, it's also a community asset, and there's a public interest at stake here, and I would expect that after 13 years of vacancy, two major fires, and a homicide in between, that there would be more direct action by the city to take this building away from the owners, put a for sale sign up, that they'll make their money back in no time at all. But of course, if they follow the bylaws and they've boarded it up properly, there probably isn't much the city could do. As you said, it's private property. 
Well, true enough, but they, they do have the tool of expropriation, and uh, yeah, that costs some initial money in, in, uh, at the front end, but they'd more than get their money back by by taking the building away and putting it up for sale. And as I say, there's also taking title without compensation, a different kind of process from expropriation, but nevertheless, something that takes this building and others like it out of the hands of building owners like this who are not prepared to be communi- good community partners. James, thanks for your time. Uh, you're welcome, Hal. Thanks for your interest in the subject. Donna Henry, president of Windog. Hi, Donna. Hi. Thank you for doing this. So um, you've basically come out with a list, and people can see the whole thing at windog.ca if they want. And mm-hmm. you're suggesting if you're a dog lover, and I certainly am. My, my Hershey is listening right now. She's one of my, <laughs> my only listeners. Um, if we're dog lovers, you've got some suggestions on who we should vote for on October 24th. Tell me about this. Um, well, what we we did the same thing this year as we did in the last election campaign. We uh, sent out a survey to all of the candidates and asked them um, if they if they're elected, if they would be willing to set aside a tenth of one percent of the annual capital budget to um, improve existing off-leash dog parks and create new ones, and if they would also support single-use off-leash areas, which means that um, if you're in an off-leash area, only those activities that are associated with off-leash dogs can take place. So there's no bicycling in a dog park, no running in a dog park, running or jogging. Um, At Kilcona, there's a toboggan hill in the dog park, which is obviously a really dangerous thing. So for for safety and security of people and dogs, we've asked them if they would support, support that concept. And you've got some people that are sort of at the top of the list, your favorites. Run those down for us. The, um, the top dogs, if you like, are all <laughs> incumbents um, because they've had a chance to um, demonstrate their support for off-leash dog parks. They support the uh, dedicated funding for dog parks, and they support single use. So um, at the top... We have um, Mayor Brian Bowman, North Kildonan City Councilor Jeff Browati, um, Councilor for St. Vital, Brian Mays, um, former City Councilor for St. Charles, uh, Grant Nordman, and there's a fifth one. How come I'm forgetting? And I don't have it in front of me. Darn it! I thought you. I thought you'd have those all at the the top of your mind. That's fine. Um, I'll I'll uh, get that in and I'll share it with everybody in a moment here. What do you say to people that say, "Listen, we're dealing with a meth crisis, and we're talking about who dog lovers should vote for in this election." Some people say, "You know, is this really a a, a valid and important issue?" But obviously, for you at Wind Dog, it is. Um, it is, and, and we don't think, I mean, the budgets are never either or. Yes, the city um, is in a meth crisis, and, and that obviously means that that issue needs to be addressed financially. But, you know, this is never an either or situation. Um, Winnipeg is so far behind every major city in Canada in the number of off-leash areas it has um, it's even pretty much last in Manitoba. Portage, La Prairie, Brandon, and Thompson 
all have more off-leash areas per capita than Winnipeg does. And, you know, there's there's really no shortage of space, of green space in Winnipeg. Winnipeg has about 10,000 acres of parkland and green space. Only 200 acres of that have been set aside for dog parks. We have in the city animal services um, thinks that there are about 120,000 dogs. So that's the same amount as Calgary, um, even though there's a difference in our populations. There isn't in the dog population. So where we have 10 or 11 um, dog parks, Calgary has 150. So we're dog lovers, but we don't seem to be treating our dogs as well as other cities like Calgary. Um, That's for sure. You know, and dog parks are... They're not um, all that expensive in, when you compare them to other dedicated recreation facilities. They, they really need to be fenced, and, you know, that's probably the biggest cost. Um, but we think it's reasonable. I mean, the city sets aside um, dedicated space for, you know, golfers, for skateboarders, for kids, for, I mean, there's lots of dedicated space out there, and, and we just think that it's important that dogs have their own space where they can go and, you know, run, exercise, socialize, and it's not just for the dogs, it's for the people that use those dog parks. And another point that's worth considering is by having those off-leash spaces, people who don't like dogs or who are afraid of dogs aren't going to be encountering off-leash dogs in in places where off-leash dogs aren't supposed to be. Um, but people people often take their dogs to school grounds and other um, un- empty green spaces just because there aren't enough dog parks in the city and none in their own neighborhoods. For example, there's not a single dog park in the North End or Point Douglas. There, um, I, I don't believe that there's one in all of southwest Winnipeg. So, you know, we need to catch up. You know, um, and I've got the list, and I'll read the list right away here. Um, but I, uh, I agree with you that, uh, you know, this election is about getting educated. And you're right. Dogs might not matter to some people, and to other people, it's a real high issue on their list. And so it's about education, and you're just letting people know, here are the candidates who are dog-friendly, super dog-friendly, committed to Winnipeg's off-leash areas. And here's the list. Mayor Brian Bowman... North Kildonan Councillor Jeff Browati, St. Vitale Councillor Brian Mays, Waverly West Councillor Janice Lukes, and former St. Charles Councillor Grant Nordman. Those are your super dog-friendly candidates. And if people want to see the whole list, they can go to windog.ca. I don't know how I could have forgotten Janice Lukes. She is one of the most dog-friendly councillors in the city, and she was the very first one on the floor of council in July to say that if she was reelected, that she would absolutely support dedicated funding for dog parks and single-use designation. Donna, thanks a lot for doing this. I appreciate it. Okay. All right. Thanks for calling. Carolyn, we're actually, this is good for you. Uh, we're going to get into what we're going to talk about in a second here. Carolyn Klassen from Conexus Counseling every Thursday here from 2.30 to 3. So, uh, we're going to be talking about Big Brother Canada coming to Winnipeg looking for house uh, guests for Season 7. And so I started the show today. I said, if CJOB were the Big Brother house, who would win? Now, you know me. You know Mackling. 
you know McGarry. So let's just keep it to the three that you've worked with and know. <laughs> Who would win Big Brother? Who would be the one to be in the house last and win the money? Mackling, McGarry, or Hal? Well, what I do know is I'd like to see that show. <laughs> yes, that's a good answer. Yeah, I would like to see that show too. Yeah, yeah. I think, I think, this is just what I think. Yes. I think I would be the first one out of the house. Okay. I think Mackling would win because he has gr- a great social game. He's just friendly and chatty and he's good at that. And you don't? Um, I don't think I'm as good as Mackling, I no. think you underestimate your social game. You think so, I eh? do. Wow. Yes. Yeah. Mm. It would be a good show, though. Wouldn't it? Yeah, it really would be. Yeah. Yeah, it would be good. Okay, enough yeah, on that. You've got at least one viewer. Enough on that. Signed up. Cinnamon buns. Do you like cinnamon buns? We're talking about cinnamon buns Who today. Who doesn't love cinnamon buns? <laughs> the counselor from Connexus <laughs> Counseling is here, and I'm talking cinnamon buns and Big Brother. Well, <laughs> welcome to Hal Anderson Afternoons. That's kind of what we do around here. Listen, uh, we have been talking a lot this week about the meth crisis, and we're going to continue with the politicians tomorrow. We're going to talk about uh, talk with Bowman in the morning show tomorrow. Uh, then Jenny Muckaluck on Career Show, and then I'm going to have Tim Dyack on, sort of the three big uh, mayoral candidates. And I don't need a meth expert because we got tons of those and we've been talking to those. But I have uh, really got a sense this week in looking at this. We've talked to moms and brothers and dads, and you know we're getting emails from families that are going through this. And I thought, let's maybe just talk about this because, it, I mean, it really does destroy families, doesn't it? Addiction is a family disease, absolutely. Yes, it affects entire systems. And um, w- while one person may have the addiction, it's the entire family that struggles and suffers along with it. And I think you're hearing the pain um, because often the people who are struggling with the addiction are not able to be in a place to say, this isn't going well. It's the people around them that are in a place to be able to say, this hurts, this is hard to watch. Um, and they are able to articulate and advocate that which the person who's struggling with the addiction isn't in a place to, to, mm-hmm. to, to do. And then I had a thought, too. Once somebody gets clean and sober, that's always in the back of your mind, right? If it's your child, your mom, you're, you're the mom or you're the dad or the brother or the sibling or whatever, that's always in the back of your mind thinking, oh, are they clean and sober or are they you know, have they relapsed? It changes life, absolutely. When someone yeah. has um, had an experience of addiction, um, I think what it does is that you recognize their vulnerability and you also recognize that as a person, you hope they don't relapse and yet relapses are statistically possible and so that's a risk. You know, when you become a parent, I don't know that, I read this somewhere where like what they don't tell you is that you sign up for a lifetime of having your heart walk around in a body outside of you. Um, And when they're very little, you get to control who they talk to and the decisions they make. And so while it's exhausting, you can also sort of supervise and make sure that they're okay. But then when they grow up to be adults and they get to make their own decisions, good, bad, or otherwise... Um, you're so vulnerable because you care about them just as much and you can no longer protect them from the effects of their own decisions. And trying, experimenting with drugs, some people fall into addiction um, where it no longer becomes a choice for them. But when people start making those choices, it's heartbreaking. Um, And then you can find this little piece of your heart that's in somebody else. You watch it being eaten up by the disease of addiction. It's horrifying to watch. It's It's helpless. 
And one of the things that I think we, people with addictions in their families recognize is that there is a time when a person who has is struggling actively with addiction where they will ask you for help and it doesn't pass the sniff test, right? They're asking for 20 bucks and you have a feeling it's not going to go towards groceries, right? And so it's painful um, because you want to be supportive and helpful, but they're helping you in a way, they're asking for help in a way that you feel like is enabling. Mm-hmm. And then there comes a point where they need help. They realize they're powerless over this addiction and they need treatment and they look to you and they're not asking you for enabling help. They're asking you for real authentic help. I need treatment. Can you help me? And I think that's where families rub up against of now this feels honest. This feels like a kind of help that I want to give. And then with the treatment options in the city, people feel like I know what you need and I know how I want to help you. And I am not sure that I can give you what you need right now or the system can give you what you need. And that is so painful for a parent to be in that place. Yeah. I just wanted to get your perspective because that's one thing I've noticed this week. We hear moms and dads and brothers and sisters talk about that addict in their family. Like, for example, we had one mom on and she was talking about how uh, her daughter was addicted to opioids and then became addicted to meth. And the guilt involved when she wished for the days when her daughter was hooked to opioids because at least she would sleep. Now she's on the top of a building, naked, going through that mess psychosis that we've talked about. And I'm just thinking, man, as a family, as a mother, how do you deal with that? It's it's kind of sobering for mother to realize she's at that place where the least worst or an opioid addiction seems preferable to mm-hmm. a meth addiction, right? And the, the way that addictions can mess with a person and mess with the people who love them just can't be underestimated. And I think a lot of people who find themselves in a position where they love somebody who has an addiction, um, they realize, I always thought it couldn't be me. I always thought it happened to other people and now it's happening to us, right? Mm-hmm. And it it's really painful. And I deliberately actually use, I don't, I try very hard not to use the word addict. I do person with an addiction, Because a person with an addiction is much more than the addiction. They are a son, a daughter, a mother, a father. They have dreams and goals. They have gifts and strengths. And they are so much more than just the addict. And people who struggle with addiction need to be reminded of that because that is their hope, is to regain and to remember who they are when they are not using a substance in an addictive fashion. I will do the same from now on. That's great. You know what? Jeff Courier and I were talking about you coming on the show today, and Jeff said, you know what? I I tend to always learn something from Carolyn. And, uh, you know, it's the same when you say, instead of saying uh, committed suicide, they took their life, right? Or when you're talking about somebody who has experienced sexual abuse or uh, you, you say that they're a survivor and not a victim. Right. Right. And so what we're talking about here is person first language, that a person is a person before they have an addiction. So they are a person with an addiction rather than an addict. I'm going to make that change. That's a good one. Thank you. Yeah, that's uh, and we just say things the way we've always said things sometimes. We don't you know, you're in that business, not a business, but you're in that line of work where you get that and understand that and deal with it every day. And we have to be better at that because language matters. Sure, it does. And we're the ones that thousands of people are listening to. And so Mm. if they hear me say it, they say it. And maybe if I change it, they'll change it. So those are, you know, it's important that you clue people like me in when you can. And I've had other people do it on the air and that's, I have no problem with that because I think it's uh, it's important to uh, to figure that out. One other thing on this, and then we'll move on. I, you know, and when, when that person with an addiction does say, I need help, and mom and dad or whoever, the family is there to get them the help, and then the help isn't available. Wow. Like they've made that huge leap 
That person wants help. They're ready to help them. And then that treatment isn't there. That bed isn't there. You know, like these are all the stories we're hearing this week. It's very much the ultimate and heartbreaking because often for a person to get to the point where they're asking for help in a way that is saying, I really need to address this addiction. It, it comes from a place that is often pretty dark and pretty desperate. And so the desire to help, and they, they recognize this is a help to get out of trouble, not a help that's going to help them stay in their trouble. Um, and when you finally hear that, everything in you says, I just want to make a difference and I want my child to be in a place where they can be healthy and enjoy life and enjoy the best of what life has to offer. And then to feel like the best I've got, the best our system's got, isn't enough. Uh, because there is a stretch on resources, and and that's a reality that we all have to deal with, is that there's more need than there is resources, and how do we figure that out, and how do we move through it? And I don't have any answer, but I do know the heartbreak that a parent has when they want help for their child. They know what their child needs, and they're not sure that they're going to be able to get the help that their child needs in sufficient qualities or for sufficient quantity or duration or quality that is going to be able to help that child give the support they need because breaking the cycle of addiction takes time. It takes a lot of work. You need to do the work. It's not easy. Um, and it's a process that people need to engage in. We're going to take a break in a moment here, and we're going to talk about happily married people living longer and when honesty may not be the best policy. But before we do that, you've got some workshops coming up, Mm -hmm. and I know you want to get the info out, so go for it. Tell us about what it's about and when and details and all that stuff. Okay, so um, as we've talked about before, um, I believe that we are wired for connection, and I like to do whatever we can to help people to live, to show up, be seen, and live brave in their lives, and to not have that which keeps us small in our lives hold us back from what we want to accomplish. Uh, And so I have found Dr. Brene Brown's work, who I feel does a really good job in helping people uh, wrap language and figure out how to work on that in a way that is experiential, gets beyond people's heads and gets to their hearts so that we can produce change at a deeper level. Uh, I'm certified in her work and I deliver workshops that um, come from her organization. And so I have a Daring Greatly workshop from October 26th to the 28th and Rising Strong from November 16th to 18th. And Daring Greatly is about showing up, being seen, living brave in your life, knowing that when you try hard enough, often enough, there's no guarantee of how it's going to go, but being vulnerable to try new things is really important part of being fully alive. Mm. And then Rising Strong recognizes that when you try hard enough, often enough, you're going to fail. And when you have that fall down, fall down on your face moment, it's so tempting to say, man, I shouldn't have tried that, or I was so stupid, or... You just you just call down on yourself of, I shouldn't have taken that risk. And what happens if you could tell yourself a different story and you could be able to rise strong from that fall, whether it be, you know, losing a job or a grief of loss of in your family or a transition of some sort, even retirement of how do I make sense of this so that I am not a victim or a villain of my story, but that I can be the author of my story. Mm-hmm. And how can people get signed up? Uh, go. Uh, you can call us at 204-275-1045. We'd love to chat with you. It's just a few minute process over the phone. You can do it by email as well. Uh, and you can connect with us at info at connexuscounseling.ca, either directly or go through our website and there's a chance to email us there. Hal Anderson Afternoons, the podcast, is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and anywhere you find your favorite podcasts.